As we look at Psalm 97, it's a majestic psalm, and as we think about who God is, the fact that God is sovereign. We do not live in a country that has a sovereign. There is no king, there is no queen, there are no duke or duchesses or any prince or princess, although maybe in your family there is a queen or a prince or a princess, but usually there is not an individual who goes around and says, I'm king, I'm a king, or um, in our country we do not have that. But uh, understanding within the Bible and the context in the Old Testament, there were monarchs, there were individuals, and even though we don't live within that context, we can understand what a sovereign is. Some demanded great justice. Some were tyrants, and we'll look at even some of those later. But there's coming a future earthly kingdom in which God will rule visibly on earth, and we will see his superior and ultimate power. If you look at chapter 96, just go back one Psalm 96 and verse 13. Psalm 96 and verse 13, and it says there, saying, For he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. And that has not occurred. Some have said, oh, there, you know, God is building his kingdom here on earth. But uh, this is not God's kingdom. While he may be, is in control and has reign, this is not his kingdom. It'll look very differently. But in this psalm, we, we know that God is sovereign, and we learn about what will take place, and we learn about God, and that is the blessing of the Word of God, because we learn about who God is and the plan that He has for our lives. And in Psalm 97, verse 1, it says, The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coasts and islands be glad. Or as stated before, it says, Let the multitude of isles be glad. First of all, let the earth rejoice. All the inhabitants, it includes all of creation, rejoice. Think of a, a choir of angels. Think about people we rejoice. If you're a, a Washington uh, Nationals fan, you can rejoice because the team won the World Series. When the Cubs won the World Series, there was rejoicing, and a lot of people probably didn't believe it because they'd been losers for so long. <laughs> but as we look at different areas when the cardinals i believe it was 2010 when the cardinals almost won the super bowl there were people that were rejoicing that were so close and saw it maybe as you were growing up things we don't do or emphasize as much anymore but parades when there was a military parade or when people came through there is rejoicing in the streets people are happy are excited and there is no animosity between one another. It doesn't matter if you're of different backgrounds, religions, race, or creeds. There was happiness, a rejoicing, because there was a common uh, bond through what has occurred. And here we see the earth will rejoice all the inhabitants and includes all of creation because God is sovereign in his rule. God is in control. He is the one who is the ruler. And we can see that he is in control. And it says the multitude of isles or coasts or islands, it can refer to the comprehensiveness of his rule and the fact that it covers all of the earth. There are some who just have a rule here and maybe they want to increase their geographic area of rule. We think about Alexander the Great and how he continually spread out his reign. And because of 
just the common Greek language, and there's different ones. And then the Romans came in, and with the, um, the rule because of the roads, and they had different rule. Or it could refer to the fact that no one is left out. If we think about a rule, there can be some uh, individuals where it talks about on the islands or the coasts. If you think about the farthest inhabitable areas, that rule, they will still be ruled by God. And he has rule. And if you hold your spot and go to Psalm 139, 7 through 10, Psalm 139, 7 through 10, As we understand, look at Psalm 139, often is used as being the personhood as God knows us so intimately in the womb and beforehand. But it says in Psalm 139.7, it says, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea... Even there, your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Understanding within the reign that God has his rule, there is no place that God is not. God is a spirit, and his rule is beyond and without borders. And that is important for us because God's dominion and rule is global, and all within that reign can rejoice. See, the challenge is, as we look at other countries, as we look at the rain, we sometimes think, we look at the news. We watch the news and think about what is taking place. And there's a lot that can depress us because look at what is taking place, whether it be the terror, whether it be the injustice. And we think, God, where are you? God is in control and he permits this to occur, but someday all will be under God will come as a king and there will be a different type of rule. But God permits that and God is still in control. And that's what we can see today to know that God is still, uh, um, has everything in his control. But the rule that we see there. Second thing we want to look at in verse 2. As we read verse 2 back in Psalm 97, it says, Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of of his throne. God is sovereign in his righteousness. We don't talk about much about God's righteousness. And on the next slide it says, God is sovereign in his righteousness. God is righteous. He's perfect. He is morally right. His ethical standard in conduct. And he always does what is right. Now, if you've ever lived with a child who follows rules, or if you've ever had a sibling who follows rules, you probably hated them because, oh, they're Mr. Miss Perfect. They do everything right. Maybe you were the child who liked to cause trouble. Maybe you're the child who did things that got you in trouble. I can relate to that, and I was the only child, <laughs> per se. I had an older sister who was 10 years older, but really, guess what? It falls back on you. But you think that's standard. Why, why does that... Why does that Child get perfect grades. Why does that person do everything that is right? That coworker, you know, because they set the bar and you're like, man, I can't even get to the bar because of uh, whether it be behavior or thought processes, but the standard. But God is righteous. And because of that, he sets a standard. 
And to understand, as it looks here where it says clouds and darkness, the righteousness and justice, as I was reading that, and it, it is simply, it gives a picture, a visual picture and reminder of being back, the nation of Israel being back at Mount Sinai. And if you think about what is taking place, and you can turn there or you can follow along as I read in Exodus 19, verse 16 through 25. Reading in Exodus 19 and verse 16 through 25. It says, On the third day when morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, and a loud trumpet sound, so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because of the Lord had come down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain shook violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai at the top of the mountain. Then the Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain and went up. The Lord directed Moses, go down and warn the people not to break through to see the Lord. Otherwise, many of them will die. Even the priests who come near the, the Lord must purify themselves or the Lord will break out in anger against them. But Moses responded to the Lord, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai since you warned us. Put a boundary around the mountain and consider it holy. And the Lord replied to him, Go down and come back with Aaron. But the priests and the people must not break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out in anger against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Interesting that uh, Moses there, even he says, Lord, you put the boundary. Sometimes knowing the people. And the challenge is, as we think about righteousness, as we think about any moral standard or guideline, what often happens, we ourselves, humanly speaking, we rationalize. We think that maybe, you know, we can come close to the edge of sin, of what is right. And we think that we can handle it. But then there are some who says, you know what, I know myself. And when we understand ourselves, that we are prone to sinfulness, and sometimes we think that we can handle a situation. Well, the danger occurs because once we're in that situation, emotions, hormones, um, circumstances change, and we lose control. But it's better that we put a boundary up, whether it be a physical boundary, whether it be a, um, an emotional or mental boundary, the accountability of someone else. Imagine this. Have you ever been on a diet and maybe you say, you know what, I'm going to Eat, not eat certain foods, or I'm going to put a boundary on it. And then all of a sudden, you know, at work, they say, oh, guess what? It's free. We're, you know what? We had one of our vendors come in, and they said, eat whatever you want, you know, and they brought all this food, and it's like, what in the world? You know, and then, of course, Christmas time, you know, they bring snacks and cookies, and you have everything, and then you go home, and you know, oh, man, there's leftover food, or this, these treats, or ice cream, or cheesecake, and it's like, Put a lock, put a refrigerator, uh, put a lock on that refrigerator so that I don't get in. You know, my weakness is homemade cookies, and it's coming up to Christmas time. You know, and I love homemade cookies. Store-bought, eh, they're okay, but, you know, homemade cookies, that's, that's you know, the downfall. But um, if you think about certain foods, what occurs? But you could try to put up that boundary. I am not going to eat this cookie. Or if you know Lay's potato chips, only eat one. Yeah, right. You know, they're just challenging. You eat one. You can only eat one bag. What is that, one case? 
one potato chip. But sometimes we have to have other people put boundaries in there for us. If we know ourselves, it's better that there's accountability. Even as men, sometimes, you know, as visually, pornography is so prevalent. And so if we have someone else who is a, we're accountable to, to say, okay, be careful of this, viewing this, what takes place. Or maybe it's shopping. Whatever your weakness is or vice is, we need to be careful and to help people when they pray for us, when to put that protection in place. Here, as we think about Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. And as God gives and demonstrates his righteousness, that this is a standard. And as we look at the Old Testament, the standard is given that God is perfect and holy. And as we learn from the New Testament in Galatians that the Old Testament law was given to understand that, guess what? We can't keep that standard. But sometimes we think that we can do it. If you've ever watched Nemo, sometimes you think about um, the, the father there. He says, Nemo, sometimes you think you can do things and you can't, little, little fish. But humanly speaking, we think that we can do things. We think that we can, but guess what? We really can't. And once we get into that situation, then we realize we can't. Maybe you were a child or maybe you had a child, and guess what? You thought you could eat all of the food in front of you. Thanksgiving is coming. Think you could eat all that food. I'll take seconds. Maybe, did your parents ever have that rule like, okay, if you get more food, you have to eat everything on your plate? Interesting cultural side note is that in Asian Korea, sometimes everything put on your plate you're supposed to eat. In Peru, in Latin America, in some countries, you're supposed to leave a little bit. You know, when, when cultures collide, you know, that can really cause a mess because, you know, eat on your plate, you know, and the person's on their third plate, and these people who say, oh, he didn't leave anything on their plate, well, I better get more food. You know, you could really co um, come into a dilemma. But understanding is the righteousness, the standard that God gives. We might question it, but it's God's standard because of who God is. And God is righteous. He is perfect. And God is completely just in all his ways and actions. Sometimes we think, God, that's not fair. But God is in control. He is sovereign. And his righteousness is a balance of love and justice. Because if we just had justice, we'd be like in the Old Testament. Okay, you sin, bam, you know, lightning strikes. Put up your lightning rod because, you know, you said something or did something, and God's going to strike you down. And if that were it, we just live in complete impossible fear, and there'd be people going zip, 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 electrified, and they'd be gone. We'd all be gone. It'd be like boom, boom, boom. But then on the other side, if God were only loving, oh, God is love. You can do whatever you want. You know, oh, that was sin, love, love, you know, and we, we dote on that and overemphasize that, then we don't understand the justice. And that's why we understand that God is just and God is also merciful and loving. And that's the hard part for believers because sometimes we're of the nature that God needs to punish every sin. Why does he allow that to occur? But then God is loving. Oh, you know what? It's okay. You killed the people or you did that wrong. Well, God is loving and he's, he'll be okay. And we, we need to understand that balance. Because guess what? There is going to be a penalty for sin. And as we think about a monarch who is just, I was looking, doing some background, thinking about evil monarchs and the example of, and maybe you've heard absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. But humans are unable to be truly righteous. And as we think about it, I just wanted to read, and, and some of it may be a little graphic just because of the history of these individuals. But if I were to say, people who are unrighteous and 
who their reign was not very fair, if you will, Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan, over the course of his empire building career, he showed no mercy to his enemies, often completely wiping out entire cities or using hostages as human shields in battle. This led him to wiping out an estimated 40 million people. At that time, it was 11% of the population. Tamerlan the Great, who also went by the name of Timur, he was a Turkish conqueror whose reign lasted roughly 40 years. In Baghdad, it's believed that he beheaded 90,000 people and built more than 100 towers out of the decaying skulls. Vlad the Impaler, actually the precursor to where we get Dracula. Um, though remembered as a hero in Wallachian present-day Romania folklore, his tactics against his enemies comprised night raids, mass murder, disembowelment, skinning and boiling victims alive, but his far preferred method of torture was impalement. There were like 43,000 people at least that, um, and it earned him the moniker of Vlad the Impaler. Put him on, just impaled him. Ivan the Fourth, the Terrible. He grew up in the court of Moscow at age 13. He had one noble eaten alive by dogs. He beat up his own pregnant daughter-in-law and killed his son in a fit of rage. And uh, he had paranoia, a taste for blood, earned him. I mean, think about it, Ivan the Terrible. Maybe you were a child and known as Ivan the Terrible, but it was beyond that. Caligula, if we could go into the, um, the, the Romans. He declared himself a god. He instituted a reign of terror through arbitrary, arbitrary arrest for treason. He was engaged in incest with his sister, lived sexual debauchery. And his biggest mistake was, what he did was, he took the military and had a surreal war, if you will, against the ocean or against the sea, ordering his soldiers to wade in and slash at the waves with their swords and collecting chests full of seashells as the spoils of victory so that he could have victory over the god of the sea, which was Neptune. A little odd, peculiar, but Mary, queen of Scots, he be, she beheaded traitors, murdered heretics, had pregnant women burnt to the death in the name of her religious fanaticism. And she burned about 300 people at the stake over a three-and-a-half-year period. Bloody Mary. Um, there's another queen of Madagascar who established a rule so ruthless it's been estimated that the population of her kingdom was halved during her reign. I include her because she was forced more people to undergo the notorious Tangina test. And what happened is she required people to eat three pieces of chicken skin before swallowing a poisonous nut that caused the victim to vomit, if it didn't actually poison them, which it often did. If all three pieces were not found in the vomit, the victim was executed. And then finally, last one, King Leopold II of Belgium. And this individual, he didn't rule in Belgium, but actually in the Congo. And he raked in riches from the Congo Enormous reserves of copper, ivory, and rubber. But the Congolese were forced to work by wholesale mutilation of their wives and children. Basically, it'd say, you do this, or he would chop off their hands or feet. And mutilation was so widely used as punishment that anyone who ran away or collected less than their quota, he would mutilate. We live in the United States. You know, thankfully, we don't live in, in an era where there was a reign of terror. And to understand that in the reign of God, especially in the future 
millennial kingdom, there will be peace. He will truly demonstrate his character, who he is. But even as we live today and we see some of these atrocities going on, we must understand that God is righteous. And in seeing those, it is not, God, while God permits those to take place, there is purpose to help people come to Christ, to see that he is good, that he is right. There is a standard of right and wrong. And that's the challenge is people have not understood that who God is. If you don't believe in a God, then where is your moral standard of right and wrong? As we move along, verse 3 through 5, God is sovereign in his holiness. And this is an important characteristic of God, that he is holy. Verse 3 through 5, it states and says, a, a fire goes before him and burns up the, his enemies around about. His lightnings light the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. Holiness. This is a defining characteristic of God. It, very important. Because he's perfect, but separate from sin. And he's separate from his creation. He isn't limited by his creation. The fire and lightning. It reminds me of Revelation 4, 5. God cannot allow sin to be in his presence. But Revelation uh, chapter 4, verse 5, it, it says, Flashes of lightning and rumblings of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. As we think about the throne room of God and of judgment, the fire and lightning, the earthquakes, there's some quotes that, as we think about sin and holiness, being separate from sin, God is holy, perfect in every way, but he's separate from sin and cannot allow sin to come into his presence. And you know, sin, while we may get away with sin, there's always a consequence for it. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Not only does sin have consequences, but also each time we sin, we reinforce a pattern that becomes harder and harder to break. If we persist in sin with the thought that one day we will get right with God, we should remind ourselves that God may still be there to forgive and restore us, but we may not be. Holiness produces fear, awe, respect. God judges the sin. And those consequences, well, they may come immediately or they may come delayed. And it's important for us to understand that our relationship with God is vital to confess our sins. And what he did on the cross, as we think about even today with communion, paying the death, the penalty, paying his death, his resurrection, the payment for sin, that we can be forgiven that we can have peace with God. What a wonderful condition. And the presence of God, where it talks about in the verse, a reminder of the future kingdom on earth, marked by the actual presence of God ruling mankind. You know, if Jesus were with us all the time, sometimes we say, uh, you know, God is with us because he is a spirit. But if he were physically with us, I think that would dictate and modify our behavior. Think about a little child. Think about where you would go, what you would see, what you would do. You know, oh, God is there. Or, you know, what, how we would respond and behave. And 
hopefully it's not simply because we're fearful of what God would think, but fearfulness of who God is. That God is holy. And he's separate from sin. And by that, while we're fearful as well, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we also wouldn't do anything that would hurt him in that we love him. And our desire is not to cause him pain, to cause just the reminder for us of what he did, the sacrifice that he gave on the cross. The holiness of God. God is sovereign as we look at the whole Psalm um, of 97. Then verse 6 through 9. God is sovereign in his worship. God is sovereign in his worship, verse 6 to 9. And this doesn't refer to just the corporate singing. or the It is the continuous outpouring of our lives in worship. Oh, you know, the worship service. It's worship embodies our response to who God is. As we worship God throughout the week, it isn't just, oh, we come to a worship service. Or we sing songs, oh, I enjoyed that worship service. Worship is our engagement with God, if you will. When we pray, when we sing praise to him, when we are out and sometimes as we live in the West, we see a great sky, we look at the awe and wonder of the stars and we think, wow, what an awesome God. Worship. And God is to be worshipped because our natural tendency as humans is to rebel against authority. If you, if you think about people who do not know Christ, they say, well, I don't want to become a Christian or I don't want to believe in God because then I'll have to change my behavior. <laughs> and it's sad within, within our churches, within Christendom, because what happens is all the things that we couldn't do before, if you, growing up, sometimes you think, you hear people, I don't want to come to Christ because I'll have to stop doing this, stop doing this, stop doing this. And then you have believers and others who say, well, come do this and you can still be a Christian. It's okay. Oh, you know, just don't worry. You don't have to change. The change comes from within. Sometimes our churches try to dictate the change, but the change comes from within. When you understand who God is, guess what? You're going to have to leave some stuff behind. When you understand who God is and you realize the presence of a holy God, the forgiveness of a God who is loving and kind, the sacrifice, you're going to want to just get rid of that and understand that, God, you have done so much for me. Our perspective changes and our worship. We are in awe of who he is. Romans 14, 11. A couple passages here I just want to give to you. Romans 14, 11. Romans 14, 11, and it states and says, For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. And as we go to Philippians 2.10 as well, Philippians 2.10, it states almost the same. Philippians 2.10 says, 10 and 11 will go through and say, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and of those in heaven, and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then finally, going over to Revelation 4.11. Revelation 4.11. We talked about that throne room. 4.11, and it says here in verse 11, 
starting in verse 10 where it says, The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. He is the creator, and he is sovereign in his worship and control. And whether those who like or recognize him or not, someday they will worship him and understand who he is. When Jesus rules his kingdom, there will be no rejection to his sovereignty or demand for worship. As you think about the picture of the military leader, oftentimes they cause their subjects or the prisoners to subjugate themselves and put down their knees before. Even the knights, they lower themselves and humbly place themselves before. And someday, that's the picture, is that every living creature will bow before God and recognize who he is. Because once they recognize who God is, they are going to respond. Even Thomas, as I think about the deity of Christ, when he says, when, Je when Jesus said, here, Thomas, put your hand near my side. Feel the nail holes. But Thomas said, guess what? My Lord and my God. I honestly don't believe that he went over there and, and tried to do that. He instantly understood. My Lord and my God. The fifth thing we look at in Psalm 97, not only is he sovereign in his worship, but he is sovereign in his protection. The protector. Maybe you were a child and you were younger and you were afraid of the dark. Maybe you're still afraid of the dark. That's okay. Sometimes you're afraid of what's in the dark, right? You hear voices. You wonder. Maybe you're in a, in a new place or a hotel. You're like, what's going on? But as you look at it, it's always more comforting when someone is there. And here, as we think about protection, let me read just going back uh, as far, looking at verse 10 through 12. Psalm 97, verse 10 through 12. And it says, You who love the Lord hate evil. He protects the lives of his godly ones. He rescues them from the power of the wicked. Light dawns for the righteous Gladness for the upright in heart. Be glad in Yahweh, you righteous ones, and praise his holy name. See, God exists separate from his creation. He's not dependent on it, yet he cares for it and sustains it. And God protects believers in two ways. First of all, physically. The supernatural events. Maybe you've been a believer for a period of time, and you've seen God work, whether supernaturally or through a tangible way of protection. You recognize that. You understand who God is. And he presents himself in a way that says, guess what? God definitely protected him. Others who don't believe in God say, well, well, that was just chance or that was serendipitous. That was fate. But guess what? God communicates in such a way that we can see the details. It was God. In a way that we can recognize it. And physically, God can protect events and sometimes he protects in ways in which we're unaware of you know if you think about your lives and how much we're aware of even the capacity of our brain to take on a given set of circumstances situations chaos is going on around you and you can only take in a certain amount of it 
but maybe it's in traffic. You're driving, and there could be a crash behind you, you know, and, and maybe that, that was the cause that was because of you. But God protects us, and sometimes we don't even realize it. Maybe you're late for work, and there's an accident that maybe you would have got in. Maybe there is events that occur that we don't even realize. But yet God has the power and capacity to cause all things to exist, to, for the world to sustain itself, for the electrons, neutrons, and protons, the electrons to keep going around, the negative and the positive charges to continue on the microscopic, even unviewable level, but also in our lives. He can protect us. Maybe from ourselves, because some of us are clumsy or things occur, and, you know, he protects us physically. But he also protects us spiritually. And this is important as well, because as we look at the spiritual attacks from the spiritual realm, there is a battle taking place. And even in John 17, 5, where Jesus prays and says, I, pr- I pray that... Um, you would protect them or keep them from the evil. The King James says evil. Actually, it, in that passage in the New King James and others, it is the evil one. Referring to those because trying to snatch up. Those who are trying to take him. In Ephesians 6, 12 through 16, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. There is a spiritual battle taking place in and it's not like cosmic forces. It's not dualism. It's not like, oh, the force. And, you know, are you on the good side or the bad side? <laughs> no, it's not like that. You know, you need more of the force, the cosmic energy. But what it is, is there is a battle. And there's a spiritual battle. And things that take place and understanding that we confront it. And if you try to live for the Lord, you are going to face some opposition. But to understand that God also enables us through his Holy Spirit to respond in a way which will honor him. And those things that occur to our lives, sometimes we say, oh, the devil made me do it, right? James doesn't say that. When we're enticed and given over to sin, it was ourselves. In every situation, we have the opportunity to do what is right. But often, in our humanness, we choose what is wrong. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Satan, as our adversary, is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. See, the challenge is sometimes, humanly speaking, we think, oh, you know, sin isn't that bad. We, we, we undermine demons. We, undermine, we undervalue Satan. And granted, if, if you're not living for God, you know, he's not going to bother you. But the challenge is that we think, oh, it's not that bad. These sins aren't that bad. But the goal is not simply to corrupt us. The goal is to destroy anyone who is for God. That is Satan's desire, is not simply to cause you to fall and stumble. Maybe you're falling, stumble, but he wants to step on you and destroy you and cause you to reject Christianity. And that's what we need to understand is that stay away from that sin. And his goal is to destroy unbelievers. 
because then they can't call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, understand that your soul is susceptible and God desires that you know who he is and have a personal relationship with him and be at peace with him. And then finally, looking at what is the purpose? As we look at Psalm 97, our world and lives seem so turbulent. There's so much going on and our future unknown. But we must understand that God is still in control of all. As we talk about the kingdom, that it'll be much different when God is in complete reign of that. But nowadays, we must understand that God is still in control and has a plan and purpose. While he permits people to reject God, he permits people to engage in uncontrolled passions and sin, we think, why does God allow that? God has a purpose, and someday he will return, and there will be judgments. But in this time, as we think about what is our purpose, and it's important for us to understand, to grow in our understanding of who God is, in our relationship, to live for him, but to remember that God is in control. Even though our lives may seem chaotic, we don't know what the future holds. Maybe you're going through a health issue an emotional issue, maybe family members. And we think, is God really in control? But he is. And we must understand that we have the opportunity to glorify him, to point people to Christ through our response to everything that occurs to us. In our blessings, in our thankfulness, to thank God, but also in our failures. Did you know that we can honor God in our failures? As we think about the rule, you know, when, when a person falls down, we always tell them, get, pick yourself back up, get up. Sometimes we need a friend to help us up. But we need to understand the importance is to get back up. It's the same thing in our spiritual lives, that sometimes we're down, we're beaten up. We're like, oh, I, we don't want to get out of bed. And sometimes we need the encouragement of a friend. Sometimes we need the still, small voice of the Spirit reminding us you are loved sometimes we just need to understand that keep getting up god knows what you're going through and he's in control of not just today not just yesterday tomorrow the next day and the next day and as we look at this the majesty praise god for who he is shall we pray